I haven't been up here for six weeks, so uh, I have to get used to me again. But it is uh, good uh, to be back, and I want to thank the uh, elders for giving me a break. Uh, it is much appreciated. We are in uh, Jeremiah, and today we're going to cover three chapters, so, and, and they're long, so I'm not going to read all three. We are going to go through it. Um, as we go through the sermon, I'm going to skip a few verses here and there. So you want to have your Bibles out and open to Jeremiah 18, 19, and 20 so that you can follow along. I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you uh, on Sunday so that you can uh, more easily follow along. You don't have the entire, all three chapters in the outline. About half of them are there. Um, so we're going to try to get through this. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come again this morning to your word knowing that we are in desperate need of it. We need to know that everything that we need for faith and practice comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that when your word is open before us, it is the word of the Lord. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that builds our faith and gives us hope and teaches us how to trust you because it's built on your word coming to Jeremiah and through him to us. So this morning, help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, obey it, trust it, and trust you. So we pray, speak through your word to us this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Every once in a while, I like to get my hands messy. Uh, Maybe that's what led me into taking a ceramics class at summer camp back in the early 1970s. So that and 17 straight days of rain. Anyway, ceramics sounded like a good idea. I liked that you got to make things. And as the only one in the class who wasn't much into art, I was well out of my comfort zone. And throughout the summer, we learned... Uh, about different types of clay and textures and techniques. But what I really wanted to do was use the potter's wheel. See, the instructor was my mom, and she made it look easy. You sit down at the wheel, you roll up your sleeves, you throw down your prepared clay, and you get it wet, and you start the wheel, and you press the clay, and you create this cool-looking bowl or jar or plate or whatever you want. And pottery is one of the oldest arts in the world. It remains virtually unchanged to this present day. And uh, so the potter takes a lump of clay and twists it and kneads it and pounds it until all the bubbles and the impurities are out of it so it's soft and pliable. And then you put the clay on the wheel and it's turned by a treadle, which is like a foot pump, and you throw the lump of clay right in the middle of that wheel and the wheel uh, would spin and the potter would shape the clay with talented fingers and smooth it. And from that unlikely lump of clay, there would come some marvelously uh, useful and beautiful vessel. And if you watch it, it looks really easy. Now, when it was my turn, I went to the wheel and I threw the clay on it and it hit towards the side of the wheel and spun right off onto the floor. So I tried again, 
and I managed to get in the middle of the wheel. Now, I had to shape the clay into this round form that we call the hockey puck, because that's kind of what it looked like. And before you can do anything with it, you have to make sure it's completely even, and it's centered, and it's completely balanced. Well, after several hours, I was tired. My back hurt from being hunched over the wheel. My shoulder was sore from throwing the clay. My fingers were cramped from kneading the clay. My wrists were frozen from constantly pressing hard enough to make this goofy hockey puck. It took me the whole summer to make something worth taking home. I had a lot more success with ceramic molds. Now, you just sort of put the clay in the mold and you put it together and, you know, you heat it up and it gets hard. But then you still have to scrape it and smooth it and paint it and glaze it and fire, put it in the fire in the kiln. And you have to watch the kiln because sometimes they blow up. Not that I would know anything about that. Just to prove I'm not making this all up, I brought a few of my amazing creations. (laughs) You are going to be awed. Okay, this is a frog. (laughs) I made this, I was like 12 or 13, I think. It's a great frog. So we have a frog, and I made a horse. Huh? Pretty good. This is like an Aztec horse or something like that. I don't remember. Um, But I've had, these are the only two things I have left. Um, So I have a horse and a frog. So you can come look at these. And I know we have some folks that do ceramics and pottery and stuff like that, so you're probably not odd. But the rest of you, you can. So that's, that's, that's all I have left from that summer. But I realized creating a masterpiece of any kind of art takes time, it takes patience, creativity, forethought, and a certain amount of skill, none of which I had. But that's how God describes his role in Jeremiah's life. We read that God is the potter, and Jeremiah and us are the clay. And if you think about it, we want it to be the other way around. We want to be in control. We want to tell God what we want him to do in our lives, how we want him to answer our prayers, how we want him to work something out on our behalf. But the Bible is very clear that who are we to tell our creator what to do or how to answer a prayer or how to respond to a request? The book of Isaiah actually uses this potter and clay language multiple times. Isaiah 45 says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Isaiah 64, we read, But now, O Lord, you are the Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. So like Jeremiah, our role is to be the clay. That means we're to patiently undergo this process of preparation, of being centered, being formed, being shaped, always being refined by the will of our Creator, and not the other way around. So, Come with me, let's walk with Jeremiah in these three chapters. And we'll see how his obedience to God's word 
takes him from a potter's house to a public beating with some pot smashing along the way. And come with him as the core of his message shifts in these three verses from an appeal for repentance, which we see the end of that at the chapter 18, verse 11, to the announcement of impending doom that can no longer be averted in chapter 19, verse 11. And so come with him to the peaks of rage and the depths of despair. As his prophetic journey moves to the halfway point and from here on becomes one of increasing hostility and public humiliation and physical suffering. So with that good news, let's turn to our passage this morning. And we're going to start with the news that the potter can change his plans. The potter can change his plans, chapter 18, starting at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you, and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and deeds. So God sends Jeremiah shopping, this time to the local potter's house. And his mission, however, is not necessarily to buy anything, but simply to watch and wait for God's message. And so we see Jeremiah as he greets the potter and he sits down to watch and I imagine that he probably asks the potter what he's making as he's working at the wheel there in verse 3. And the potter tells Jeremiah his plan for this lump of clay beneath his hands. And he goes on watching and waiting. And something happens. We're told the clay is spoiled in verse 4. We're not told how and we're not told why. Perhaps there was a stone in it or a lump in the clay. Perhaps it was too dry. Uh, maybe there wasn't enough clay for the project. Uh, maybe it was misshapen. Whatever it was, clearly something is not right in the clay for the plan that the potter had. So what does the potter do? Jeremiah watches and sees how the potter reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. It may well be that Jeremiah saw this happen several times. 
you know, with different lumps of clay and different pots as the potter worked through all of his daily orders. And uh, Jeremiah probably asked questions as to why he changed his mind about some lumps of clay and why the end product uh, turned out differently from what he had first planned. And I'd like to think this is the potter from whom he actually bought and paid for a pot at the beginning of chapter 19. And if, you know, as we read the whole story, you can sort of imagine the gossip going on in the potter's house. You know, first he comes in here, he just sits all day, he's watching me and asking dumb questions and scaring away the customers. And then he goes away without buying even so much as an egg cup. But then he comes back later and buys a huge wine jar, the biggest I've ever made, and takes it out to the rubbish dump and smashes it to bits. Is this weird or what? It's just hard to figure out what Jeremiah is doing here. But what has Jeremiah seen? Well, on one hand, he's seen a craftsman in complete control of his medium. The potter decides what he plans to do without seeking the clay's permission. And the end product is whatever the potter decides the end product is going to be. Now, this image is a familiar one in the Bible for the sovereignty of God. God plans and God accomplishes uh, what God chooses to do. And in fact, this is the initial message that God gives Jeremiah to tell the Israelites in verses 5 and 6. On the other hand... Jeremiah has witnessed something very interesting in this relationship between the potter and the clay. While the potter remains in control, it's not entirely a one-sided affair. Sometimes there's something in the clay that causes the potter to change his plan for the clay. True, the potter has the power to do whatever he chose with the clay. But the condition of the clay could cause the potter to change his plan. And so the final result is this mysterious combination of the sovereign will of the potter on one hand and the condition of the clay on the other hand. And whether the plan is fulfilled seemed to depend not only on the hands of the potter, but to some extent on the condition of the clay. And it's the second element and what Jeremiah saw happening in the potter's house that provokes the message that follows. Jeremiah is not so much focusing on the sovereign will of the potter, that's assumed in verse 6, as he is on the condition of the clay and on God's freedom to change his plans according to how he finds the clay and how the clay reacts. Now, the message derived from the pottery class begins and ends with a direct address to Judah and Jerusalem. And in between are verses that outline this remarkable theology of God's overarching rule in human history. Picks up language that we got all the way back in uh, Jeremiah chapter 1. It said, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build and to plant. And Jeremiah is reusing all, or God is reusing all that language here in Jeremiah 18, and he deploys it in a way to uphold the truth of verse 6. God's sovereign, and people have as little control as clay does in the hand of the potter, but also with the challenge of verse 11. 
that when God declares a plan, he expects a response, a reaction, which in turn has the potential to cause God to change his plan and do something different. In other words, God is affirming a universal truth about the principles of his divine rule. God responds to the human response to his plan. And God can change those plans for better or worse accordingly. Now, we see this throughout the scriptures. We have the capacity to avert God's threatened judgment through repentance. Multiple times, God says there will be judgment unless you repent. But we also read in the scriptures that we have the capacity to forfeit God's promised blessings through disobedience. (coughs) You know, we're told there will be blessings if you obey my word. And if you don't obey my word, you don't get any of the blessings. It's not that God is changeable, but that God will consistently respond to our changeability. The divine potter can accept the once rejected And the divine potter can reject the once accepted. And the overall message is that while God remains sovereign over end results, he takes into account the way people respond to what he says. God's sovereignty responds to human choices. Human actions affect the way God implements God's plans. So what does all this mean for Judah right now? So Jeremiah asks that question, and God gives him the answer straight from the potter's wheel. The encounter with the potter went with a little imagination, something like this. So now says God to Judah, look, I am preparing a disaster for you. I'm devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you. Reform your ways and your deeds. In terms of logic, this could be rendered, and I have a slide Uh, for this. Plan A, I intend to act in judgment against you. And there's a response. Repent and change. You can counteract plan A if you choose to, which implies a plan B. I can change the plan and suspend the judgment. You don't have to suffer plan A if only you will respond in repentance. So that's sort of the logical flow to what he's saying. That last line is not in the text, but it's implied by the logic of these verses. And it's already been urged upon Israel from the very beginning of this book of Jeremiah. In other words, the message from the divine potter is essentially, work with me here. Respond to what I say. Change your ways and I'll change your plans. Sounds good. If we repent... God won't bring judgment. Let's do that. But then we read, the people won't change their plans. Verses 12 through 17. But they say, that is in vain. We will follow our own plans. And will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask among the nations who has heard the like of this. The virgin Israel has done a very horrible thing. My people, jumping down to verse 15, but my people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. Now we see 
that God's final offer meets final refusal. Coming after such a heartfelt appeal, this level of defiance is somewhat breathtaking. And yet, this is a response Jeremiah has heard all along. He's gotten this from the people since he first became a prophet. It's repeated again and again and again. But now, somewhat ominously, it's given to him for the last time. This stubborn refusal to change means that Israel has forfeited any chance of moving to that implied plan B. By their own choice, or rather choosing not to make the choice that God told them to make, that God has urged upon them for their own good, God has begged them to repent and change their ways and deeds, and they have said no. And so God is going to do what he said he was going to do and carry out plan A, which is judgment. The divine potter has found no response in the clay that would cause him to change his plan to act in judgment. And the whole book has shown that this is what they deserve. We could word God's message like this. I offered you every chance to bring about a different future from the one that's staring you in the face. And if you remember, the future that's staring them in the face is the Babylonian army on their border. And the Babylonian army is about to come in and conquer them and destroy them and basically take whoever's left alive away into exile. That's the future they're looking at. And God says, I've been patient and open. I've been willing to adjust my plans to your choices like a potter working with changeable clay. And even now, I'm warning you of what lies ahead, urging you to take these steps to avert this wrath. But if you won't, then the full force of my judgment will fall upon you as Jeremiah has predicted for years. But you will never be able to say, I didn't warn you, or that, that, or that there was no alternative. There was and you refused it. Now we know from later on in the book that those who will go to Babylon, who will go to exile, will read all this again. Can you imagine after the fact? You're now in exile, you're a slave in Babylon, and you start reading these words, and you know this didn't have to happen. It would be, I think, an incredibly painful reminder of how they ended up there in that future when a different one was possible. It's also a challenge to them to seek the Lord again, to return to him from the ashes of judgment and hope for a different future yet again, which God's going to promise them in chapter 29. It's promised to them in Deuteronomy chapter 30. But this defiant stance where they say we will follow our own plans. It picks up a, some key words. It's actually translated as two English words. It's one Hebrew word in this passage. And it's translated as plans and plots. So the word occurs in verse 11. We have God's plans. In verse 12, their plans. In verse 18, the leader's plots. In verse 23, plots that include assassination. 
and chapter 19, verse 7, the plans that God would ruin. These two chapters reverberate with clashing plans. God's imminent plan open to change and the people's stubborn plan that they're unwilling to change. And their plan is to silence Jeremiah permanently if possible. It's kind of like, bring him back to me dead or alive. I would prefer dead. And we see that in verse 18. But plotting against the prophet is plotting against God. Israel's whole stance is a rejection of the word of God, whether it's in the scriptures or through their prophet. And in the end, only one plan will win. And it's not going to be Israel's. God's plan will be the only game in town. How inexplicable it is, how hard to understand that we read verse 15, my people have forgotten me. Forsaking and forgetting go together. Describe a betrayed and broken relationship. That's where the real pain lies. When a grieving lover says, you've forgotten me. (coughs) She's not talking about, you know, a lapse in memory. What she's saying is all of our shared lives and shared stories, our promise and joys, the whole journey we've made so far, all these things mean nothing to you anymore. I mean nothing to you anymore. You've dropped me and I'm broken. There can be few things more desolate than being abandoned like that. And that's the pain that God feels. Those are the tears that Jeremiah weeps for God. And because of all that, we see the prophet changes his prayers, starting at verse 18. And this begins uh, about a chapter and a half shift in the whole book. It says, verse 18, Then they said, Come, let us make plots against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Basically saying, we've got these other guys, and that's good enough. It says, come, let us strike him with the tongue, and let us not pay attention to any of his words. And then we have Jeremiah. Hear me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of my adversaries. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them? And now we get Jeremiah's rage. Therefore, deliver up their children to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence. Their youths be struck down by the sword in battle. Well, that's comforting. You see, the plot thickens. The people who reject God focus on attacking God's prophet. We have the specific mention of these three official authorities in verse 18, the priests, the wise, the prophets, indicates there's this powerful coalition that's launched these plots to silence Jeremiah. It's important to feel the seriousness of what's going on here, the the weight of it all. This is not a theological disagreement or a scholarly debate. This is conspiracy at the highest level of the religious establishment, plotting how to deal with the Jeremiah problem. 
Now, it could be due to fear. Maybe they saw Jeremiah as a threat, kind of like they later saw Jesus. You know, he's attacking the traditions of our society, threatening our authority. He must be stopped. It could be they're just contemptuous of him. They're comparing the enormous weight of these religious experts, priests, and the wise and prophets, you know, with this loss of this one measly little prophet. He's probably an imposter anyway. You know, if we silence him, one less prophet won't make any difference. Things will go on as before. And against this background and against this life-threatening campaign, we come to this outpouring of Jeremiah's emotion before God. And it's easy to sort of gasp at the fierceness of Jeremiah's prayer. I mean, it's a pretty rough prayer. You know, I'm praying, God, their kids would die of famine. I've never prayed that prayer. I'm really hoping that you've never prayed that prayer. But Jeremiah does. He hasn't been praying like this pretty much up until this point. Several times we've read that God had to tell him to stop praying for the people. They had sinned themselves beyond all appeal. And it assumes that Jeremiah has been a faithful intercessor on their behalf. And he reminds God of that in verse 20. He says, remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath uh, from them? This has been Jeremiah's struggle all along in both directions, to speak to the people on behalf of God and to speak to God on behalf of the people. And neither task brought him any thanks. The people ignored him, and God basically said, you're wasting your time. Fair enough. That's what a prophet expects. But what seems unfair is now they're going to kill him. And so he says, should good be repaid with evil? They have dug a pit for my life. And the imagery is they've already dug the grave. And they've already got the marker that says Jeremiah. And he's looking at that saying, this is not a good sign. But there's this sense of, hasn't he suffered enough already? I mean, rejection, mockery, social ostracism, betrayal. And on top of that, now he hears he's a target of a campaign to kill him by the most powerful forces in the country. You know, our executive branch and our legislative branch and our judicial branch are hardly ever in unison. But could you imagine if all three of those were in unison against you. We don't agree on anything except you're out of here. And we've already dug the grave. That's what Jeremiah is facing. And so he comes to God and says, I think it's time for you to start rewarding people according to what they deserve. Jeremiah gets mad. He gets angry. There is rage coming out here. This man had prayed for his people to be spared the wrath of God, and now he prays that they're not spared at all. He prayed that they should be forgiven, and now he prays that they should never be forgiven. Nowhere do we see the honesty and humanity of Jeremiah more than here. And it would be quick to rebuke him for such prayers if we knew what it was like to face that kind of threat against us and this came at him for about 20 years. 
and the faith that Jeremiah wishes upon those who are seeking to destroy him is pretty severe. Verse 21, deliver up their children to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence. Their youths be struck down by the sword in battle. Pretty much he's asking God to kill them all. And the, the, the crazy thing, none of this is hyperbole. Jeremiah's words reflect the horrific truth of what will actually happen in bloody siege warfare. What Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon is actually going to do when they invade. These horrible prayers will come true exactly as Jeremiah has said. Exactly as he foresees the future of Jerusalem. His words are anticipating this gruesome historical reality. And it helps us theologically come to terms with uh, Jeremiah's prayer. If we take note, Jeremiah uses no words of his own in these verses. Everything he asked to come upon his enemies comes from what God has already said in more graphic detail back in chapters 6, 9, 14, and 15. God's already told them that stuff is going to happen. And Jeremiah prays it in the sense of, you've already said it, now do it. Jeremiah is asking that God's threatened judgment would fall upon those who've compounded their sin of rejecting God with the sin of rejecting God's prophet to the point of death. And he so inhabits the mind of God that his words and emotions echo those of God, both when he's crying out words of being brokenhearted and when he's seeking to avert God's wrath and when he's praying for the fulfillment of what's already been prophesied about the outpouring of God's anger. Jeremiah is praying what he has prophesied. And he finds unrelieved pain in both. Because on one side, he's praying for them to change their ways and repent, and they don't do it, and that hurts. And the other way, he's saying, well, just go ahead and bring the judgment, but I know it's going to devastate the people. It's going to devastate the land. Both prayers bring pain to Jeremiah. And yet when we've done all that we can do to read this prayer as humanly understandable, as historical reality, as theologically true, I don't know about you, but it's still left feeling somewhat uncomfortable. You know, can such language be justified? It's one thing if God says it. It's another thing if Jeremiah says it. Can we say it? Even if we allow that Jeremiah is not wrong or sinful to voice such a prayer, God doesn't correct him, can we imitate it? Can we pray such a prayer? Can we pray what Jeremiah prayed? And I think the answer has to be no. That being said, it's easy to say that because most of us have never suffered 
what verse 18 describes. And we're in no position to criticize Christians in our world today who do endure such things at the hands of the enemies of God and who legitimately cry out to God for God to rescue them and to exercise justice on their behalf against their oppressors. And that's going on all over the world. The Bible assures us that God hears the cries of those who suffer hatred and violence of his enemies. But to pray that God should not forgive their crimes, that God should not blot out their sins, can we pray that? I don't think so. Because we're standing on this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection. And our example is now Jesus, not Jeremiah. And even if we make all of the allowances in understanding the context of Jeremiah's prayer, we still find that the gulf between praying down famine on children and praying for forgiveness for one's enemies is the gulf between Jeremiah being led to the slaughter and the uncomplaining Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, being led to the cross. And of course, the way Peter describes it, uh, of Jesus says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then we have the explicit pro prohibition of Jesus himself in Matthew 5. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. We now have a different set of commands. But it's not just about us, because God also has something to say to those who are doing the plotting and the persecuting. And so we see, starting in verse, or chapter 19, the pot is broken beyond repair. The pot is broken beyond repair. I'm not going to read this whole chapter, but I'm going to read some of it. It says, thus says, starting in verse 1, thus says the Lord, go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate. Basically means broken pot gate. And proclaim there the words that I tell you. You shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. Because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come to my mind. Jumping down to verse 10. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, so I will break this people and this city. As one breaks a potter's vessel, so it can never be mended. <coughs> then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy. This is now verse 14. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people. So he's now gone to the temple. He's addressing all the people in the temple. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. So we have this theme of pots and plots continuing. Jeremiah returns to the potter's house. He buys an earthenware flask, which could be used to carry water or wine. And once he assembles this group, he delivers the accusation from God, summarizing all the message that's gone beforehand uh, in these chapters. And he adds one additional detail, which is the mention of child sacrifice in verse 5, which is such an abomination that God says he never even imagined it. It was, however, something well known to the pagan religion of the Canaanites. So in verse 4, when he says, the people have forsaken me and profaned this place, essentially God is saying, you have Canaanized this place. You have turned it into a foreign country. I'm no longer at home here. I am not even welcome here. And if such words made the people flinch, then the grand finale would have startled him. With a sudden gesture, Jeremiah raises this heavy earthenware flask and smashes it on the ground. And the meaning is clear. The people in this city are going to be smashed like this shattered jar. And when you set it alongside all of the potter and clay imagery that we've gotten so far, there's an added dimension. Because as long as the people could be compared to the clay in the potter's hand, there is some hope of change. If they repent, God would change plan A to plan B and take away this threat of judgment. But they've refused all his appeals. And when a finished pot is smashed to the ground, we're told it can never be mended. And the tragic message of this is simply, you have made your last refusal. All hope of reshaping the clay has now been forfeited by this generation. The shattering finale is upon you. And it is beyond repair. And from this point on, Jeremiah offers no further appeals for repentance. The doom of the city is sealed by their own determination to reject every appeal they've heard from him. One Old Testament scholar says, This is the point of no return. This destruction is not for chastening them or for discipline. There's no invitation to repent. It's not intended to teach a lesson. There is no escape clause. This judgment is final, massive, decisive, unarguable. Now, we already know that Jeremiah is not a popular guy. We already know that they're threatening to kill him. We already know that they've already prepared his grave. Can you imagine the courage it took to then go out there with this pot and and shatter it and to stand in the court of the temple and preach that it was going to be destroyed? Jesus said that. They didn't take any more kindly to when Jesus said it as to when Jeremiah said it. It's asking for trouble. And to put it mildly, trouble is what Jeremiah gets. Which brings us finally to the harsh words of chapter 20. This is one of those passages that if you didn't preach through the book, you would never preach this chapter. You know, if you were just going around, you'd just skip this. 
And it's only because we go through that we get it and you got to deal with it because it's there. And we're not allowed or we don't allow ourselves to skip anything. So here's chapter 20. The prophet perplexed but not silenced. Now Pasher the priest, the son of Immer, who was chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day, when Pasher released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pasher, which means light on every side. But he calls your name terror on every side. Imagine if your name was like, Bill is good. And now the prophet says, you got a new name. Bill is bad. From now on, the rest of your life, your name is Bill is bad. Well, this guy went from light on every side to terror on every side. You think that endeared him to Jeremiah? Probably not. Picking up in verse 4. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He will carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. And to verse 6, to Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied falsely. Verse 7, and this is Jeremiah now speaking to the Lord. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. And if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name... There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering terrors on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him, say, all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived, then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. And then we get to verses 14 to 18, which may be among the harshest verses in the scriptures. And Jeremiah has gone from a position of rage in chapter 18 and 19 to the depths of despair at the end of chapter 20. He says, Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. 
Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Those are sad verses. Again, it's hard to imagine people saying that. The story that began in the potter's house ends in prison stocks. Pasher has Jeremiah beaten and he's put him in the stocks for 24 hours. And we don't know if it's personal spite. He's the chief officer in the house of the Lord. He's merely carrying out the policy that would have been declared back at the end of chapter 18. If Jeremiah wouldn't shut up, he has to be taught a lesson. But as he soon learns, you can shut Jeremiah in, but you can't shut him up. And this indignity under pasture becomes the first of many physical assaults in which Jeremiah proves however much they might imprison him, they can't imprison the word of God from his mouth. And there's a clever play on words in these verses using the word prevail or overcome. Again, one Hebrew word, two English words. It occurs four times in verses 7 through 11. And the force of the repetition is something like this. In verse 7, he's saying, you won God's overpowering of Jeremiah. In verse 9, he's saying, I can't win his inability to hold back the word of God. Because if every time he preaches the word of God, he gets beaten. And so he tries not to do that. And he can't. He has to do that. And so no matter what, he suffers for speaking. And then verse 10, he hears, We will win the plans of Jeremiah's enemies, plotting to turn him over to the authorities. And then verse 11, they won't win. Jeremiah's stubborn confidence that God will defend him and frustrate the plans of his enemies. I mean, Jeremiah is saying, I can't win. If I speak up, they beat me. If I keep quiet, there is a burning fire in my bones. But in the end, it's God who wins because Jeremiah has to speak. The divine compulsion is too strong. Prophet's got to do what a prophet's got to do. So who wins? Verse 10 is the pivot point of this passage, and this passage is really the pivot point of the book. The relentless attacks of his enemies make Jeremiah complain that God has won the power struggle against his own prophet. Jeremiah can't win. He must speak, verses 7 through 9. But if his enemies thought they would win against this prophet, they were so wrong. With God on Jeremiah's side, verses 11 to 13, his enemies could not win. So you have this situation with God on his side, Jeremiah can't lose. Against God, he can't win. With God, he can't lose. Against God, he can't win. And he finally realizes that. And he actually goes down into despair. I'm either getting tormented on the inside or tormented on the outside. And the chapter ends. So what does all of this teach us? Besides that Jeremiah's life is way worse than ours. I think it teaches us about the value of redemptive suffering. 
I had a whole different conclusion earlier, which I threw away last night. But by this phrase, redemptive suffering, I mean how God uses you in the midst of your suffering or as a result of your suffering so that you learn how to trust him through it all. So redemptive suffering, God uses suffering to teach you how to trust him. Jeremiah's cries form a lament, the bitterest lament in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah knew persecution. He watched his people reject God's word. He had this shame of public humiliation. And all this suffering has placed this giant question mark over his existence. He doesn't even say, like, why am I even here? He's like, why am I even born? And though we think he's strong in his faith, it's times he has more questions than answers. Have you ever been there? Times where you had more questions than answers? I'm guessing yes. And on this occasion, he questions his very existence, his creation, his salvation, his vocation. And all of this question teaches us one final lesson about suffering. Although suffering can place a question mark over us, It never has the last word. Chapter 20 ends with a question that Jeremiah himself was in no shape to answer, but Scripture actually gives us a good answer. Why did Jeremiah come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow? God's already answered that question at the very beginning of the book. The prophet needs to be reminded of the very first thing that God had ever said to him, Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah traces his trouble back to the womb, but he doesn't go back far enough. God traces his promises back before the womb. He had a purpose for Jeremiah's life before the beginning of time. And the prophet needed to be reminded that from all eternity... God had set him apart for salvation and ministry. And perhaps you need that same reminder. Some of you are suffering, I know. Some of you are suffering, and I don't know. Some of you have been ridiculed by friends and family. You feel you have enemies waiting to trip you up. Perhaps you're weighed down by the ungodliness of our contemporary society. Are there times when you wonder why you were even born? This is why. God set you apart for salvation and ministry. Before the beginning of time, he planned to save you in Christ. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The same could be said of every Christian. We come into this world like so many clay pots. Our lives are pitted with blemishes and impurities. We're neither useful nor beautiful. As clay goes, we're not all that easy to work with. We need to be created all over again, which is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a sinner who trusts in Christ. He makes him or her into something useful and beautiful. And if you know Christ, you're a memorial to God's patience and long-suffering his careful use of material, his power to make something out of failure. 
So then the follow-up question is, are you okay with what God's doing in your life? Are you okay with how God's shaping your life? God often makes something out of us that we didn't have in mind. We have disappointments. We have diseases. We have discouragements. Like Jeremiah, we can become really desperate sometimes. And for one reason or another, we're unhappy with how life's turning out. And very likely, if you were behind the potter's wheel, you would make yourself very differently. And the question is, would you turn yourself into the potter and unseat God from the wheel? Jeremiah says, you're not the potter. You are only clay. And the proper thing for the clay to do is trust the potter and yield to his skillful hands. Are you willing to trust the potter? Do you believe that he knows best, designs best, shapes best, fashions best? If you've given your heart to God, you can trust him to transform you into something useful and beautiful. And if that seems hard to believe, it's because he is not even close to being finished yet. He is taking the time to work on the parts of your life that are still a little lumpy and off-centered. And some parts he may need to smash down and raise all up, uh, up all over again. And can you trust him, really trust him to do what is best? After all, he set you apart to do his work, to be his work. Ephesians 2, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Suffering can place a giant question mark over our lives. But the grace of God always always, always has the last word. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you we are misshapen clay. We would rather be in charge of how our lives turn out than trust you to shape us into something useful and beautiful. Give us a greater desire to know your word, to know that it's powerful in and of itself, that it's relevant to every situation of our lives, even the really hard situations, and to believe that it all comes from your hand. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our own fears and work in each of us this year, as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and hear what he hears, teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, and an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises. And through all of those things, to draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.